Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We stopped in the middle of Proverbs chapter 20 last week. We got as far as verse 16. Now, we've been saying all the way through the Proverbs that sometimes these Proverbs just become very practical advice. And verse 16 can really only be seen as legal advice. Solomon being the king, being the judge of Israel, knows what it is for someone to become surety for somebody else. And several times we have seen here in the book of Proverbs that Solomon has talked about being surety for somebody else. Generally, Solomon thinks it's a bad idea. It's an especially bad idea if you become surety for a stranger or for a foreigner. Probably that is because if you become surety for a stranger or a foreigner, they can just run away, go back home, and you're kind of left holding the bag. Now, let me sort of explain what this concept is of becoming surety, because we still have it today. If you are arrested for any reason and you have to be in jail awaiting your arraignment and your final trial, you can contact a bail bondsman, and a bail bondsman will put up the amount of money that it takes for you to be free to walk the streets until your eventual trial. That money that they put up is the surety for you, because what it's assuring the court is that even though you're out walking the streets, the bail bondsman is promising that you will show up for your court date because there's so much money on the line. If you don't show up for your court date, that money is lost, which means that he has a vested interest in finding you, which is why Dog the Bounty Hunter exists, because he goes out and tries to find people who have jumped bail. Okay, well, that's really what Solomon is talking about here in verse 16. He's talking about whether it is right for the court to take surety from people. But he, as the judge, has apparently seen plenty of people left holding the bag. And so he has concluded that it's a bad idea to be surety for somebody else. For instance, go back to chapter 6 for just a moment. Chapter 6 of the book of Proverbs, the first five verses have to do with becoming surety for somebody else. And Solomon's going to say, don't do it. That's a bad idea. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, if you have given a pledge for a stranger, that means for a foreigner, somebody who's your neighbor, somebody who's living by you, but you have decided to be the surety, which would mean to go to the court and say, He's a good guy, I trust him, I don't think he did the crime, and I'm willing to stand up and put my reputation and my property on the line. In a moment, Solomon's going to talk about the sort of property that was most valuable to use as surety. If you give a pledge for a stranger, 
then you have become snared by the words of your mouth. That means you're caught in a trap by your own words because you became surety and have given a pledge. You've given a promise. You've said this person is trustworthy. They're going to show up for their court date. And then, of course, they skip town or do whatever they're going to do. And you're left standing in front of the judge saying, can I have my stuff back? Mm -hmm. And, of course, you've forfeited your stuff. So then you're caught in a trap that has happened because of the words of your own mouth. And you have been caught with the words of your mouth. So do this then, my son. Deliver yourself. In other words, if you have already given a pledge, if you already have become surety for your neighbor, then go back and get yourself free from that commitment. Do this then, my son. Deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. In other words, you're at your neighbor's mercy. If he up and runs away, you're standing before the court, the one who ultimately has to pay while they're going scot-free. So go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. In other words, even if you have to do it in the middle of the night, even if it's inconvenient for him, go and show him the sincerity of your desire to get out of that pledge. Do not give sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. That's how important Solomon sees this thing. If you have become surety for somebody else, go to your neighbor and say, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's importune, say, I want to be delivered from this. I don't want to be part of this. And don't sleep. Go get this done. Don't wait till tomorrow. This is a vitally important thing. Verse 5, deliver yourself the way a gazelle would deliver himself from the hunter's hand or like a bird from the hand of a fowler, which is somebody who goes out and traps and snares birds. So once again, this trapping analogy plays out. Like a bird that gets trapped, you're going to be trapped if you allow yourself to become surety for somebody else. Go forward to chapter 11 for a moment. Chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15 says, He who is surety for a stranger will surely suffer for it. So Solomon, again, giving practical legal advice. Don't become surety. Don't give your pledge. Don't stand in for a stranger, somebody who is not an Israelite, somebody from a different nation, a different country, because he's going to have no direct loyalty to you, and therefore he's probably just going to run. Once he's got you on the hook, he's going to take off, he's going to be free, and you're going to be standing there with the responsibility. But he who hates going to surety is the safe one. You're going to be safe if you don't pledge for somebody else. If you don't become surety for somebody else, don't put up the bond for somebody else. That's the only safe tactic. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 18. He now says, if you do pledge, if you do become surety for somebody else, then you're not smart. You lack sense. You, you haven't thought it through. He says, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes surety in the presence of his neighbor. 
So are you getting a feel for what Solomon thinks of this idea of being surety? Mm-hmm. He says it's a bad idea. Don't do it. Don't put up a pledge for your neighbor because if they happen to decide not to show up, if they flee, if they're not willing to accept their just due and punishment, then it's all going to fall to you. So it's not wise, it's not clever for you to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'll be surety for that person. So then, chapter 20, verse 16, after Solomon has told us all of that and given us his opinion about surety, then what happens if you are the judge and someone comes in, pledges for a stranger, and then says, I will be surety for them. Should the judge then say, oh, no, that's a bad idea? No, instead what Solomon says is if someone comes to court and says, I'll be surety for them, take their pledge. Take their surety. Because that's the only way to guarantee that someone's going to be held responsible. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. Now, that doesn't sound all that vital to us. But you're talking about people here who usually had one, maybe two changes of clothes. And even though they wore a robe underneath, they would wear a cloak above them. And that cloak was the way that they protected themselves. In a desert region like the Middle East, when the sun beat down on them, if you've ever looked at even Bedouin shepherds over in the Middle East, you'll notice that they're wearing what looks like heavy robes because it protects their body from the direct sun. And they'll keep their hood up, and you think, wow, that would really be hot, but it would actually be hotter to be out from under the shade that the robe is providing. So during the day, the robe protects them from the heat, but at night, it can get very, very cold there. So your heavy outer garment is the way to protect yourself at night. So it keeps you warm at night, it keeps you cooler during the day, and it protects you from the strong winds and the dust and the sand that blows. So your outer garment was a really, really important piece of clothing. As a consequence, you could barter with that. Even Jesus talks about if you take a man's cloak, not to keep it, give it back to him by that night. Because that's his life. That's important to him. So Solomon says, Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. Okay, now Solomon's already warned, don't do it. But if they show up and do it, take the garment. Because that's something precious to them. That's going to guarantee that at least somebody is held accountable. And for foreigners, hold him in pledge. In other words, the person who has become surety, hold him in pledge. Take his garment Make it painful for him, because then he's much more likely to guarantee that the stranger shows up for court. Otherwise, he's forfeited his garment, which is really valuable to him. Same idea, as I said, as today's bail bondsman. The reason that they're going to send Dog the Bounty Hunter after you is because they've put a lot of money into you, and they're going to lose a lot of money if you don't show up at court. So they're going to guarantee that you show up at court. Same kind of idea seems to be behind Solomon's thinking here, because he went from a pledge being a pledge, being somebody else's surety is a really bad idea, 
but then he speaks sort of the opposite way when talking from the standpoint of a judge and says, but take the garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners, hold him then as the pledge. In chapter 22, starting at verse 26, this same verse is requoted with a little bit of a difference. Notice what else Solomon adds to it. 22, starting at verse 26, do not be among those who give pledges and don't be among those who become sureties for debts. Chapter 27, 13. Chapter 27, verse 13, is where you're going to find the same idea quoted again. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger. Same instruction, but notice now that instead of saying a foreigner, he says, and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. So Solomon says, if a man comes to court and says that he's going to be surety for a stranger or for a foreigner, take the pledge, take his garment, take the cloak that is his protection. That's going to help guarantee that a foreigner or a stranger is actually going to stand trial. But when it's requoted later, Solomon also adds, and for an adulterous woman, take his pledge. So Solomon has placed an adulterous woman on par with strangers and foreigners. In other words, they are those who might flee. Those are the ones who may leave you holding the bag, but those are also the ones who are strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. I find it interesting that Solomon took the time to say, don't do it, don't become a pledge. Not for a foreigner, not for a stranger. Now we can add not for an adulterous woman. Don't do it, but if you do it, I'm going to tell the judge to go ahead and take your most precious stuff to guarantee that they show up. And if they don't show up, you lose your stuff. So don't do it. It's kind of interesting. I'm looking at the uh, the Net Bible, and there's a whole lot of textual apparatus in there that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but some of the variant texts, especially the Masoretic texts, even in chapter 20, verse 16, use the word strange woman, Hmm. adulterous woman. And so it's very similar to chapter 27, verse 18. By comparing the two, you can see that it's obviously what he's getting at. Okay, then verse 17 talks about stealing things. So sort of related to that whole judicial and legal advice idea, But he talks about bread that is obtained by falsehood. And he says that bread obtained by falsehood, by lying, is sweet to a man when somebody gets away with it. If you grab something, pocket something, and then run out the door of the store, then it makes you feel like you got away with it. But he says, but afterwards his mouth will be filled, not with bread, but will be filled with gravel. In other words, he's comparing what it is to steal something and then to be struck by your conscience. 
and to understand that even though it was sweet when you got it, once it's in your mouth, you're going to understand that what you did was lie, what you did was steal, what you did was illegal, and it's never going to ultimately benefit you then. Chapter 21, verse 6, along the same lines, says, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and is the pursuit of death. So the idea that it's a fleeting vapor means that even though you might get rich by it, even though you might build up your treasure by your lies, by your deceit to other people, in the end, that's a fleeting vapor. That's going to go away. Eventually, those riches are not going to be as sweet to you because being that kind of liar in order to enrich yourself, he says, is death. The end result of it is death, not just punishment in court, not just perhaps being adjudicated for death, but it is the very pursuit of death and eternal death. So again, Solomon is emphasizing, don't lie. I could have saved you the last five minutes and just said, don't lie. (laughs) Verse 18, again, completely practical but also spoken from the king's perspective. Prepare plans by consultation. What he's saying is, whatever plans you're making, whatever you're intending to do, get advice. Listen to people when they tell you what to do. And make war by wise guidance. Okay, well, only the king can do that. That's why I said that this is from the king's perspective. Only the king can go out to make war But before you go do that, it would be foolish to just lunge into the battlefield without having a plan, without having some kind of guidance, some counsel from people who actually know what they're doing. So prepare your plans by wise consultation. Make war by wise guidance. I think we could all agree that that is just very good advice. So the last two verses are, don't lie. Listen, there I've just summed up those two verses. (laughs) Pay attention when wise people give you advice. Meanwhile, verse 19, what about someone who is not wise, who does not give you good advice? Notice in verse 19 that Solomon is going to compare, he's going to make a direct correlation between a gossip and a slanderer because he sees gossiping, talking behind somebody else's back as a way of slandering them, as a way of destroying their reputation. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. What that means is, since we know now that he has correlated it with gossips, What that means is when somebody comes to you and trusts you and speaks to you in private, in secret, if you're a slanderer, if you are a gossip, you're not going to keep that secret. You're going to go tell somebody else. You know, within the church, so much of the gossip that happens is often cloaked behind sort of spiritual sounding ideas or concepts. Uh, You know, oh, you know, we really need to I'm going to pick on you, April, for a moment because you're sitting there. You know, we, we really need to pray for April. 
See there, I'm about to cloak my gossip in spiritual sounding verbiage. We really need to pray for April. Well, that's going to make you say, really, why? Oh, well, I was talking to her the other day, and you know, and I didn't mean to bring this up, but since you asked, and basically just don't do it. Don't be a gossip, because he says that's how you reveal secrets that end up slandering somebody else. Therefore, once you know a gossip or a slanderer, Solomon says, don't associate with them. Look, people are what they are. What's the quote when somebody shows you what they are? Believe them. Once you see somebody gossiping, don't trust them. Don't associate with them. And by the way, if you ever accept gossip about somebody else, if someone starts gossiping about somebody else and you're listening, be sure that that same person is talking about you behind your back because they've just demonstrated to you what they're like. They're willing to gossip. They're willing to tell you slanderous things about somebody else. That means they will slander you to somebody else. Well, Solomon's advice then is, since they can't keep secrets, since they will slander you, since they are a gossip, don't associate with them. Don't tell them your secrets. Verse 20. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in a time of darkness. Now, a lamp going out in a time of darkness is obviously a time of tragedy, a, a bad time. If, if suddenly you're in the middle of the woods in the middle of the dark and you're holding a torch or a lamp in order to be able to see your way, when that goes out, you're in trouble because now you're surrounded by darkness. You're engulfed by that darkness. And so that is just a, a negative story. This is what their life is like. A person who curses, who speaks badly of his father or his mother. One who is willing to say that his father or his mother ought to be condemned. One who curses his mother or father. He's basically saying that person has no light to walk by. If he's willing, instead of honoring his father and mother, which is the fifth commandment, Rather than honoring them, he curses them. Then Solomon's conclusion is that tells you something about them. It tells you something about their inner life. They are walking in a darkness where their lamp, where their light has just gone out. If they're willing to go that far into their darkness. Verse 21. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Now that just sounds like a very practical bit of good financial advice. If you're hurrying for your father to give you your inheritance, it might seem great at the beginning. Hurry up. Come on, Dad. Just give me whatever you owe me and let's go. But in the end, he says, it's not going to be a blessing in the end. Now I can't read that without hearing Jesus talking about the prodigal son. In fact, let's go look at it for a moment. Go over to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament, because I believe this story from Jesus is a perfect example of what Solomon is talking about. Starting in chapter 15, verse 11, 
Here's the parable that Jesus told. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance that falls to me. In other words, give me my inheritance. So he divided his wealth between them, between the two sons. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, and he went on a journey into a distant land, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Why do you think he would do that? Well, in my experience and my observation of human life, I have found that when you just suddenly give somebody a lot of money, if you suddenly give them more than they had, but they don't have any skin in the game, they haven't actually worked for it, they haven't put any effort into it, they've just suddenly received their windfall, then they're usually not smart with that money. They usually spend it. They usually expect that it's just going to last forever. And so that's what this fellow did. He went on a journey to a distant land. Okay, that's costing some money. There he squandered the inheritance, the estate, which means that he just spent and spent and spent on his loose living, picking up every check and throwing money around. Yes, sir? Uh, There's a parallel to today, too, when you hear stories of people who win the lottery only to just lose it in such a short amount of time. It holds true to the parable that Jesus is talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. So verse 14, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and he attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed the swine. So he thought that he had plenty, that he could spend wildly, that he could live riotously. And then when the time came that he really needed that money, when the actual famine occurred, he didn't have the money. He spent it all. It's all gone. Now he finds himself feeding pigs just in order to get by. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. Okay, so the tragedy is... He said to his father, give me my inheritance. His father gave it to him ahead of time. He didn't have to work for it. He didn't have to invest for it. And so he spent it all. And now here he is with no one giving him anything. Because it all began with him just being given stuff. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And then you know the rest of the story, which is that his father saw him coming a long way off. And his father created a celebration because his prodigal son had returned. But the first part of that story is exactly what Solomon described back here in Proverbs chapter 20. He said an inheritance gained quickly, gained hurriedly at the very beginning will not be blessed in the end. It's not going to last you the rest of your life. 
You're not going to invest it in anything that's going to sustain you long term. Because when you get things too quickly, without any effort, in a hurry, well, then you're not going to know what to do with it because you don't appreciate it. Because you put no effort into it. I've had that same experience with my kids as I was raising them. I found that if I just gave them things, Dad, I want that. Oh, I want that toy. Oh, I want that thing. If I just gave it to them, most Christmases they got way too much stuff. And so they were more interested in whatever was coming up than what was right in front of them because they were always anxious for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But then I noticed that once I made my kids start buying their stuff, working for their stuff, yeah, you can get that if you put some effort in. I found that they cherished that stuff. They cared about that stuff. They felt the ownership of that stuff because they had actually invested in that. They had skin in the game. And so it's just a truism here that Solomon says an inheritance that's gained hurriedly at the very beginning will not be blessed in the end. All right, now in order to look at verse 22, we need to hand out some verses. Tom, would you like to read? Sure. Go to Romans 12 for a moment. You're going to start reading at verse 17. Steve, you want to read something? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. We may go a little before that, but start there. Want to read something, Micah? Go to 1 Peter 3.9. And that should be sufficient for now. You guys will be reading in just a moment. Do not say, I will repay evil. In other words, don't say, I'm going to avenge myself. I'm going to avenge myself because I've been offended or I've been, I've been robbed or somebody has done me wrong. I'm going to repay that evil that you've done against me. I'm now going to do evil to you. Rather, wait for the Lord and he will, the translation in the NASB is he will save you. The Hebrew word can mean he will deliver you. He's the one that's going to make it right. If you have the knowledge that God is going to make things right, he's going to take care of you, he's going to provide for you, then you don't need to go about constantly <coughs> repaying evil. It's God himself who's going to avenge on your behalf. Look over at Proverbs 24, verse 29 for just a moment. Do not say... Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. The same idea. If you get up in my face, if you argue at me, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to come back at you as hard as you come at me. I'm going to come against you. Instead, he says, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Don't say that. Don't be like that. If someone has angered you, if someone has upset you, if someone has offended you, he says, don't say, well, the way that you've hurt me, I'm going to hurt you right back. The entirety of all arguments you've ever been in in your whole life and will ever get into are a result of you doing that very thing. 
because somebody hurt you, somebody offended you, somebody said something you didn't like, and you decided, I'm going to make you pay for that. I'm going to come right back at you. The same way you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And as Solomon has already said here in the Proverbs, you need to step back, you need to wait, you need to think about what you're going to say, you ought to reply in a way that brings about peace instead of elongating the argument. So Solomon says, rather than you thinking, I'm going to avenge myself, you ought to recognize that God is going to take care of it. And if you know, if you really know, if you confidently know that God is going to take care of it, and by the way, his vengeance is much more harsh. I was trying to find an appropriate word for it. Severe. His is much more severe, much more memorable than your vengeance is going to be. There's only so much you can do, but Jesus said, don't fear men who can only hurt your body. Fear him who can send body and soul to hell. So fear God, because God's the one who can really mete out judgment and vengeance. Therefore, you don't have to. I can remember years ago, there was a family here, and they had several of their kids going through karate classes. And so I started kind of looking into it. In fact, I was asked privately, do you think that's right? Some of the Eastern philosophy that goes with karate, do you think it's okay for them to be studying karate? And so, so I kind of looked into it a little bit, being a guy who is not karate proficient, even though right now I'm wearing a brown belt. Even though, I'm, it's literally a, hey, I'm wearing a black one. And you're wearing a black belt, so I'm scared. <laughs> the, the philosophy behind genuine karate, real karate, or most of the martial arts, at least according to Mr. Miyagi. The, the real philosophy behind it is once you know you can win the fight, once you're so trained that you know you're going to win whatever fight you get into, once you know you've won the fight in your mind, you don't have to actually fight. You don't actually have to go strike somebody else. You can live at peace with them knowing that you've already won the day. Well, same idea here. If God is the one who is protecting you, if God is the one who's going to mete out vengeance, if God is the one who's going to judge and he's going to defend you, then you've already won the fight. And if you know you've already won the fight, then you don't have to mete out your own punishment, your own judgment. You already know what the end of it is going to be. Now, this idea of do not say, I will repay evil, but rather wait for the Lord and he will save you. That's an idea that carries all the way through the Bible and into the New Testament, which is why we've handed out some verses. For instance, before Tom reads, Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount took the exact opposite view of avenge yourself. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, that would be avenging yourself. If a man strikes you on, his, on your left cheek, give him your right cheek also. Or perhaps he said, if he strikes you on your right cheek, give him your left cheek also. I don't remember right or left in that one. But he's saying, don't avenge yourself. Instead, live at peace with all men. Tom, if you would, read for us Romans 12, 17, 18, and 19. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, now where did Paul get that? Don't avenge yourself, because God said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. So Paul says, as much as is within you, live at peace with all men, knowing that God is going to ultimately avenge you. Well, I think he got that from the wisdom of Solomon. It's a very wise thing that Paul said. It's a very godly thing that he said, but it's also completely scriptural. It's already been written down in the Proverbs. Paul just simply imported it into his theology in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, if you would, Steve. See that no one pays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Okay, so there's Paul's thinking on how you should respond to other people. Don't repay evil for evil. He has said it now a couple places. He's told the Thessalonians. He's told the Romans. It's obviously part of Paul's overall theology, recognizing that God, who is sovereign, is also your shield and is also their judge. Yes? The context of that verse is not talking about people in the world. It's talking about life in the church. Absolutely. With each other. That there's no necessity for you to do the judging. God will judge. It's his church after all. In fact, it seemed to me, let me check something real quick here. Talk amongst yourselves. Did you hear about April? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Let's all talk about April. I'm actually looking up what you just read. First Thessalonians 5.15. It just seemed to me that there was a larger context that I was interested in. I am. Very good. Start at verse 12 all the way through verse 22. Now we ask you, brothers, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them most highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the undisciplined, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient toward all. See that no one pays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Always rejoice, constantly pray, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not extinguish the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but examine all things, hold fast to what is good, Stay away from every form of evil. So in those church instructions, you will notice that Paul one more time brought in the Solomonic advice, which is don't repay evil for evil. Don't avenge yourself. Recognize that God himself will bring about appropriate vengeance. First Peter 3.9, what does that say, Micah? Oh, you will, will you? Oh, I mean. No. <laughs> Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
So don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So now you've got Paul and Peter in the New Testament instructing the church not to repay evil with evil, not to repay reviling someone who speaks terribly against you, someone who uses violence toward you. Don't, don't repay that in like manner as they've meted it out to you. Rather, recognize that God saw it, God heard it, God is aware of it, God is going to avenge you, and his vengeance is, as we said earlier, going to be much more dramatic and noticeable than anything you can mete out. And if you know he's on your side, if God be for us, who can be against us? If you know that he is for you, then you can leave it in his hands because you've already won the fight. So really, now that we've seen these examples from the Old and the New Testament, we're pretty much without excuse. It's plain in front of us. Now, verse 23 is going back to talking about differing weights. In a scale, when you're doing business, being fair, being honest in business, we looked at this in weeks past. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord. A false scale is not good. I will just leave the comments that I have made previously in place on that verse. And verse 24 is kind of where we began last week. A man's steps are ordained by the Lord. So then how can a man understand his way? It's God who ordained his way. Therefore, a man really doesn't determine his own way. So how can he think that he's in charge of it? He doesn't understand his own way. Verse 25 then starts with, it's a trap. It is a snare for a man to say rashly, It is holy. And after the vows, to make inquiry. Okay, so what he's talking about here is, once you set something apart for God's own use, let's say an animal in this case, once you take an animal from your flock and you say, now this is dedicated to God, this is going to be sacrificed to God, this particular animal, this one right here, this is the best of what I have, and so it's going to be burned for God's glory, And uh, so it is holy, it is separated, it's set apart for God's own use. But if you say that, if you determine that and then start questioning it and start thinking, but you know, that's a really good animal for breeding. And I could probably get wealthier if I kept that animal and maybe give God a lesser animal a different animal. In other words, it's the very essence of what happened to Peter. Peter was walking on the water with Jesus. And when he saw the waves and the wind coming at him, it says that he began to doubt and he began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out and took him and he stood back up on the waves and the two of them walked to the ship. The word there for doubt is actually a Greek word that means double think. When Jesus asks him, why did you doubt? He's saying, why did you think again? You had it. You were on the water. (laughs) You walked to me on top of the water. You and me, Pete, were the only two people in human history who have walked on water during a storm. You totally had it till you thought a second time. Mm. Why did you think again? 
Solomon's saying the same thing here. Once you determine that something is holy, something is dedicated to God, something is set aside for God's own use, and then you kind of rethink it, in other words, you make an, an inquiry about your vows, you question it, you're not sure that's what you're really going to do. He says, that's a trap. Don't fall for that trap. That's a trap that's going to lead you down really bad paths because now instead of being dedicated to the things you have vowed to God, you're questioning your vows. You're questioning your determinations. And that can't ever go good for you. It's very much like what Jesus confronted in the New Testament when he said that uh, some of the Pharisees, rather than taking care of their parents, they would say, well, I would, and I know I've got the money, and I've got the means to take care of you, but it's Corbin. I've dedicated it to God. So by using dedication to God as either an escape for not doing what God has told you to do, or vowing to do something for God and then questioning it so that you can escape it, Either one of those, Solomon says, that's a trap. That's going to reach out and grab you. That's going to make you fall. It is a snare for a man who says rashly, it is holy. And by saying they've said it rashly, he's saying they said it quickly. They didn't say it sincerely. They didn't give it any thought. They didn't take the time to realize what they were doing and thinking about they're dedicating that particular thing, that particular object, that particular animal. They just rashly said, well, it's holy. And there might be a whole lot of reasons for them to say it. But if they say it and then question it, after the vow, they start questioning, making inquiry. Is that really what I meant? Is that really the animal I'm going to give? He says, that's a trap. That's going to come back to hurt you. So don't do it. Then verse 26 takes a real hard left turn and talks about a wise king. Yet again, Solomon, from the perspective of being king, says a wise king winnows the wicked. It's an interesting word. It's that sifting word for winnowing out the wheat from the chaff. He says a wise king removes the wicked and he drives the threshing wheel, which when you threshed, and separated the wheat from the chaff. There was a grinding stone, which was actually just a gigantic rock that would turn in a circle. So he actually says that big rock, that big threshing stone, is the way that the king is going to winnow out or weed out evil, which means you can only weed out evil, according to Solomon, by the heavy hand of correct judgment, of proper government, and that's the way that you're going to drive out evil. It also presupposes, though, that that government is doing the right things and has righteousness at its core. An evil government is not going to drive out evil. It's simply going to encourage it. But Solomon keeps talking about a wise king, a righteous king. He's going to winnow out the wicked, and he's going to drive that threshing wheel over them. Verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. That word lamp is the word light. A man is only truly enlightened if he has the spirit of God inside him. So 
the spirit of a man, the nature, the character, the personality of a man, what makes up that particular man is only going to be lit, well lit, if it is the Lord himself who is keeping him enlightened. And once God has enlightened you by his spirit, once God has taken up habitation in you, this is very much like what we were reading just this past Sunday about how the word of God is like a two-edged sword dividing between the bone and marrow. And I said the, the word of God will slice right through you. The word of God can make those kind of divisions in you that even you cannot make. The word of God can be either a sucker to your soul or it can just make a hash of you and chop you up. In the same idea here, he says, the spirit of a man is the light, the lamp of the Lord that searches all the innermost parts of his being. No matter how dark a person is inwardly, if the light of God comes into him, the light of God will search out all those dark crevices, all those dark corners. In other words, There's no dark secret hiding place in you or in your mind or in your conscience where you get to hide anything from God. Because he and the light of his righteousness, of his holiness, is going to search out the innermost parts of a man. So you don't get to hide. Which is a little scary and reassuring. Because it's your loving father who's searching it out. Which I think by extension means it's your loving father who's going to help you become aware of it and help you to overcome it. Verse 28. I'm going to make it to the end of this chapter. Verse 28. Loyalty and truth preserve the king. Notice that he assumes, again, wise king, righteous king, loyal king, king that cares about truth he is assuming that the government that God sets up and God creates will only be sustained by loyalty and righteousness and truth because loyalty and truth preserve the king and by the way once the kings of Israel went off into their apostasy and their sinfulness and then Judah the erring sister there's an emergency alert Okay. Flash flood warning for this area. I'll get you out of here so you can run home before it flashes. <laughs> Loyalty and truth preserve the king. He upholds the throne by righteousness. And as I was saying, you saw the succession in the history of Israel of the kings of the northern tribes, and as they became progressively worse and worse, God destroyed that kingdom and sent the kingdom off into the Assyrian captivity but also destroyed that throne because a genuine kingship, a godly kingship, the kind of kingship that Solomon's talking about can only be preserved, can only continue by loyalty, loyalty to God and loyalty to truth and honesty and proper judgment before people. So loyalty and truth preserve a king, and he upholds his throne. His throne is taken care of by righteousness. So that is the command for a king to continue in righteousness, in truth, because that's the only way to preserve a throne. We have seen kingdoms and thrones through the history of the world. 
some that have started out on a reasonably good foot, some that just started out evil. We'd be here the rest of the evening if we just started naming all the nations and kings and thrones that have ever been on the planet that don't exist anymore Mm -hmm. because they ultimately became evil. Okay, now I really, 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 I really, really, I really like verse 29. I really like verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength. Okay, everybody look at Micah. See, it's strong young Micah. Want me to prove it? Everyone who moves calls Micah. Because they know, oh, Micah, he'll come over and help us move. Oh, he's, he's strong. He'll lift some things. He'll move some things. Micah, he's strong. So the glory of young men is their strength. But the honor, as opposed to the glory, the recognition within a society that this is an honorable person, that this is a wise person, that this is a knowledgeable person, that this is somebody that you ought to pay homage to and listen to, the honor of old men Is there gray hair? Okay, now granted, I don't have a lot of gray hair on my head. Got plenty down here on my chin. But what Solomon is getting at is, if you've lived long enough in this lifetime to get to gray hair, then you've learned some stuff. And you may not be able to lift stuff the way you used to, but that's why Micah exists. (laughs) That's why there are young men, young men, Glory in their strength. But the honor of old men is that they've lived long enough to have gathered knowledge, to gather understanding. And you ought to pay attention. You ought to listen to them. That, again, is a theme that goes all the way through the Bible. The whole idea of paying attention to people who have acquired knowledge over the course of their life. The exact inverse is what's going on in our society today, which is all youth-oriented, where you can drive just about any political idea by saying, think about the children. (laughs) But in the society, as Solomon was talking, it was the people who had lived long enough to gather wisdom, to gather knowledge, to gather understanding. Those were the people who should be honored because those were the people who were going to be able to think about how the society ought to operate, how it was structured, and then give good counsel, give advice, even advise the king about things like going into war or preparing plans. If you were preparing to go into war, you wouldn't ask a bunch of 13-year-olds because they'd be like, yeah, whatever, let's go. You want people who can actually think about the consequences of the decisions that are being made who have lived long enough to have seen consequences play out in time. So it is the gray-haired people who are to be honored. I think that means to listen to to pay attention to, they have the wisdom of their years, and they'll share it with you if you give them the opportunity. Which is not to say that the glory of young men and their strength doesn't have its place, but young men, for the most part, don't know the stuff that old men know. Because old men have been through it. Finally, verse 30. Which really relates again to appropriate judgment to what it is to be the king stripes that wound scour away evil remember previously that we had already heard from Solomon 
that it was the job of a wise king to winnow out the wicked, to drive the threshing wheel over them. This is the same idea. The driving of that threshing wheel is to punish evil people. One of the ways that they would punish was with stripes, with beatings. We certainly know that. Stripes that wound scour away evil. He says this is a way of cleaning people. This is a way of driving the evil away from them. Once they become fearful enough of the stripes, they'll stop doing it. It's the same reason that most of us, I was going to say spank, but okay, I'm going to. If you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So I spanked my children, but I only had to do it, what, James, two, maybe three times? Once he knew I was willing, then all I had to do to him was say, go clean your room. I'd come in later and his room wasn't cleaned. I would just come at him like I might spank him, and that room got spick and span instantly. Why? Because he knew that the punishment was coming. Stripes, punishment, that wound somebody, scour away the evil because they don't want to go through that punishment again. And strokes, which are that kind of striking. I think the difference between stripes and strokes has to do with being hit with a whip or a scourge versus being hit with like a cane, being caned or something like that. So strokes reach to the innermost parts of a man. And so it's appropriate to punish somebody because that is ultimately going to be for their good because it's going to drive away the evil and the strokes are going to reach down into their innermost heart. Next week we will begin at chapter 21, verse 1, which you all know the king's heart is like the rivers of water in the hands of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. That's where we'll pick up next week as Solomon continues talking about what it is to be a wise and a righteous king under the hand of a God who will take appropriate vengeance. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.